Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. When I was eight years old, my family moved from Seattle, Washington to a suburb of Denver, Colorado. And one of the very first friends I made in Denver was a Jewish girl named Laura. I remember jumping on her bed with her at her house. I remember this very clearly because I think it was one of my very first memories in Denver and one of my very first friends. So I really, really loved her. And as we were jumping on the bed, I don't know how it came up, but we started talking about religion. And I remember very clearly her telling me all about the Torah and all about the book of life. And I actually have very vivid memories of what that kind of seemed like to me in my mind all the way back from when I was eight years old. And thus began my lifelong love and sense of kinship with the religion of Judaism. Many of my closest friends throughout my life have been Jewish. And during college, I chose to study abroad in Jerusalem for five months, where I studied Judaism, Jewish civilization, and the Hebrew language alongside Islam, Arab civilization, and the history of Palestine. I was also lucky to have several beloved Israeli-American neighbors in Northern California. And finally, as I open with my personal connection to our topic today, I have to point out once again how many of the authors we've read on this podcast have been Jewish, from our very first authors that we read, Rianne Eisler and Gerda Lerner, through Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem and Judith Plaskow and others. I have been astounded at the contributions of Jewish women to the field of feminism and gender studies. So it is with great enthusiasm and excitement that I introduce today's book, New Jewish Feminism, Probing the Past, Forging the Future. And welcome to the podcast, the editor of this book, Rabbi Elise Goldstein. Welcome, Rabbi Goldstein. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you here today. And I just want to thank you for this book. You wrote some essays in the book and then edited the whole thing. And I'm excited to hear about the process of how you put this work together. But first, I'll just introduce you with your professional biography. As one of the first women rabbis in Canada, Elise Goldstein has broken down barriers by founding inclusive communities for learning and prayer. Goldstein graduated from Brandeis University in 1978 and was ordained by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in 1983. After ordination, she became assistant rabbi at Holy Blossom Temple in Toronto, then sole rabbi of Temple Beth David in Canton, Massachusetts in 1986, before returning to Canada in 1991 to become founding director of Kolel, the Adult Center for Liberal Jewish Learning, a major center for a Jewish adult education. Goldstein served as the first female president of both Reform Rabbis of Toronto and the Interdenominational Toronto Board of Rabbis. She retired from Kolel in 2011 and founded the Inclusive City Shul in Toronto, where she still serves as rabbi. Her first book, Revisions, Seeing Torah Through a Feminist Lens, won the Canadian National Jewish Book Award in 1998, and her 2000 book, Women's Torah Commentary, which wove together insights from dozens of women scholars, has left an indelible mark on Jewish thought. And her book, New Jewish Feminisms, Probing the Past, Forging the Future, was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award in 2008. And that's the book we'll be discussing today. So again, welcome, Rabbi Goldstein. And now I'd love it if you could introduce yourself a little more personally. Tell us where you're from, a little bit about your background, and what brought you to do the work that you do today. Sure. Thanks. And it's wonderful to be here with you. And it's wonderful to be talking about this book, which I think is still so relevant, even though it won 
you know, if it was nominated in 2008, I, I feel like with modern politics, a lot of us are saying, are we still talking about this stuff? But we still are, and it's still very, very necessary. So I'm originally from New York, so that listeners who are trying to place an accent can now place it. <laughs> but I've lived in Canada most of my adult life, and I always make a joke that I converted to be Canadian. So I, t- I took out Canadian citizenship and feel very, very proud to be a Canadian and to be, you know, one of first and I, I hope leading female liberal religious voices in this country. So what led me here, obviously, was my first job at Holy Blossom. But I, I felt at that moment in history, 1983, when I came to Toronto, and Toronto wasn't quite ready for having a very public female rabbi with very clear feminist agenda, pro-choice agenda, and a liberal agenda, you know, I felt like my that was my work, that was going to be my work, my work was going to be breaking that, I call it the stained glass ceiling, you know, breaking that stained <laughs> glass ceiling. And I stayed, you know, I did five years in Boston, as you mentioned, at Temple Beth David, and th- those were wonderful years. And I took a part-time congregation and turned it into a full-time congregation. But I came back in 91, because I still felt that this town and this country was giving me a great opportunity to advance a feminist agenda in the religious world, as much as it was advancing it in the political world and in the secular world. So that's, you know, that's sort of what's kept me here. And I I raised three Canadian kids, you know, my husband's Canadian, and I feel very comfortable here, even though I retain a lot of my New Yorker sensitivities and also, you know, a little bit of that New York Jewish pushiness, which I think is very <laughs> necessary here to get things moving and to be to be seen a little bit as a little bit of a of a disturber of the status quo. It's good it's good to just lean back and say, "Well, I'm from New York. What do you expect?" I love it. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> so, um, do you know what got me to the rabbinate is is really, I think, m- m- the most interesting part of my life story. So, I was raised in a very, very active Jewish home. My mother was a very, very spiritual person, and in many ways, Amy, she should have been a rabbi. Of course, that wasn't mm-hmm. an opportunity that was open to her. But she worked for the reform movement, the national reform movement. She was the highest woman in her in her rank without being a rabbi. So she was the director of the national youth movement for all reform synagogues. That's a huge job. She was the only non-rabbi in that, you know, in that area. And so she worked with hundreds of rabbis. So as a young kid growing up, my Sabbath table was populated by reform rabbis. You know, they were just growing up, they were the normative company in my house. And my mom would schlep me to, you know, marches on Washington against the Vietnam War that were being sponsored by this youth movement, this Jewish youth movement. So I thought, you know, to be Jewish meant to be active in the world and to change the world, you know. And I saw these rabbis doing it. So it was only natural for me to say, I want to be a rabbi. I want to do this too. Nobody bothered to tell me in 1968 at my bat mitzvah, that women weren't rabbis yet. You know, Mm. so I just... You really literally didn't know. I literally thought I want to be a rabbi. And like at that moment, I learned the hard way 
you know, that this was not an opportunity open to women. At my bat mitzvah, I ceremoniously announced, you know, that I planned to be a rabbi. And, you know, the rabbi, it was just an unbelievable story. The rabbi fell off his chair and then got on his microphone. I was on the cantor's microphone on the other side of the of the bima, the altar. And he got on the microphone. He said, no, no, no. Everybody knows that what she means is she wants to be the rebetzim, which is the Yiddish word for the rabbi's wife. Right? And everybody laughed. And I was on the cantor's microphone. So I said, no, no, no. What I mean is I'm going to be the rabbi and let my husband be the rebetzim. Ha, ha, ha. Everybody laughs. laughs. My parents were so proud, you know, because as I say, I think my mother thought of herself as a rabbi. And, you know, to have a rabbi in the family and to, and to have your young daughter say she wants to, you know, break this barrier. So I just stuck by my guns there. And I was like, you know, and that was it. That was my public declaration of my desire to change history. And then I went on, you know, I went on to, to high school. I'll tell you a very quick story. In our yearbook, you had your picture, my high school yearbook in New York. You had your picture your club, the most important club that you belong to, and your future professional desire. You know, so it would be like Jason Goldberg, basketball, and accountant, you know, whatever. So I sent in my picture, my name, and I was in choir, so I wrote choir, and then I wrote rabbi. And the editor of the yearbook sent it back with the word rabbi, crossed out in red ink, and underneath handwritten, no jokes allowed in the yearbook. Wow. So, you know, this was still very raw, very new, very exotic. And I sent it back saying, no, 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 this isn't a joke. And they ended up printing it. I have that yearbook, you know, where it says rabbi. Amazing. And there was, you know, and the first female in the reform movement had been ordained in 73. So I knew about her, but I'd never met her. And she was just an image. She was an idea. She was a concept, you know. She wasn't real, but it was later in high school, before I graduated high school, that I met Rabbi Laura Geller. She was in rabbinical school at the time, and she came to speak to one of my youth group kind of things, and that was it. You know, I was like, I saw her in the flesh, and I was like, okay, this is not going to be hard. (laughs) This is not going to be hard, I thought. And, you know, then, then I went straight ahead. I went to Brandeis. I majored in Jewish studies. And then I went on to seminary and discovered that it was hard indeed. Why was it hard? Were you admitted easily or was that a process that you had to fight against some bureaucracy? Look, the interview process was the same for everybody except for women. So we were all asked, mm. you know, we were all asked the same questions as our male colleagues, but then we were asked the extra questions like, What happens if you get married? What happens if you have children? How are you going to be a rabbi with little babies? Now, of course, they can't ask that anymore. It's against the law now. Um, Mm -hmm. But I remember leaving the interview and going outside and seeing two of my male friends from youth group who were coming up next for their interviews, you know, and knowing that they would not be asked that question. So they asked me, oh, you're single, they said, you know, what's going to happen if you meet a man in the middle of rabbinical school? Are you going to drop out? Like those assumptions were made. There were no women on the interview committee, by the way. It was all male rabbis on the interview Mm -hmm. committee and male professors. There were no female professors in school when I was there in the 80s. There are now, thank God, but it was a very male way of looking at the text all the time. But, you know, they asked you that question and it trips you up. That question trips you up. And you have to either say, 
no, I don't care if I meet anybody. I want to stay single. <laughs> or yes, if I meet someone, they're going to have to deal with my being a rabbi. Like You don't want to talk about that. It's very personal. You're trying to become a rabbi and not talking about your personal life. But by the time I interviewed for my first job at Holy Blossom, things had improved already. That was 1983. And so I remember the senior rabbi, Rabbi Dev Marmer of Blessed Memory, who was a great mentor to me and a great support and an advocate for me in a time when this town wasn't quite ready. I remember him during the interview noting that I was single at the time and saying to me, and I, you know, I've, I spoke to him many, many years later and thanked him so profusely for this and told him this is why I took the job. He said to me, you're single. He said, I'm not going to be your father nor your confidant. I'm your colleague. I don't care who you date, when you date, how you date. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to discuss it in staff meetings. And whatever you do in your private life is private. That was it. I walked out of that interview. I was like, please, please, please give me this job. And when I was offered the job, I, I jumped at it. And for, for those years that I was at Holy Blossom, Rabbi Marmer was a great advocate for my feminist work, for my pro-choice work, you know, for my political work. And when people would say to him, oh, she's very, you know, feminist, or she's, she talks about women too much, or she shouldn't talk about, he would say, this is her passion. And I hired her for her passion. So he was, a, it was, he was a great advocate. I still, I miss him very much since his passing. I visited him every year in Israel when he moved to Israel after retirement. And, and he really, he really, in many ways, cleared the path in Toronto for people to get used to the idea that I was a mm. rabbi among rabbis. I was not a female exotic specimen in a zoo. I was a rabbi among rabbis. He worked very hard mm. on that. Wow. That's really beautiful. I'm really grateful you told that story. That's incredibly inspiring. So you talk a little bit about some of your process in the introduction of the book, but I wondered before we kind of move more into the introduction, if you can tell us about why you wrote the book. What was that process like? So I had written Seeing Torah Through a Feminist Lens. It's a very good primer, let's say, to the ideas and concepts of Jewish feminism. I had felt that that was necessary. I was very moved by Judith Plasko's book, of course, Standing Again at Sinai, and Rachel Adler's book, Engendering Judaism. And I just felt like I needed to take what I was teaching about Jewish feminism and make it available to a universal audience. By the way, for those listeners who are from Toronto, one of the great influences on me for writing the book was Michelle Landsberg, who I still am involved with. She you know, was a great journalist and a great author and a very important political figure in, in the 80s and 90s here. And she said, you need to take what you're doing here as a feminist and you need to, to write it write it and, and get it out there. And then I wrote the women's commentary and the women's Haftarah commentary, which were more scholarly for a more scholarly audience and, and for people that knew the Bible and wanted to do feminist analysis of Torah stories. And then my publisher came to me and said, we need one more. We need one more and we need you to cover all the changes in the Jewish world. The, let's call it the disruptions of Jewish feminism. Right. And, and that's why I wrote that, that, that fourth book. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, I fa- I mean, I come from a, a Christian tradition, but I found it incredibly relevant for me too. And just fascinating. Every single article in the book was so, so interesting and illuminating. But yeah, let's start with the essays that you wrote and contributed to the anthology. And so if it's okay, maybe I'll just ask you some of my questions that I had sure, as I absolutely. read those essays. Okay. Sure. So for from the introduction, you talk about what you call a quiet revolution within Judaism that you say grew louder and would eventually echo into the pages of the prayer book, the boardrooms of major Jewish organizations, the seminaries, the yeshivas, and the Israeli government all within the next 20 years. So I just wondered if you can talk about that quiet revolution. It sounds like you kind of already talked about what the revolution was like in your personal life, but what was going on in Judaism more broadly at the time? So I can answer that by even talking about the changes I saw in seminary in the five years I was there. You know, I started in seminary, as I said, there were no female scholars, no female teachers. I still had a Bible professor who started every class with, gentlemen, please open the text to Ezekiel or Isaiah. Mm -hmm. Like, look right at the class. A third of my class was women, right? So I saw, what I mean by quiet revolution is our just our being there, our the very fact that we were in the room made people stop, look up, listen, figure out, we need to change our language. We need to, you know, in almost every class I took in seminary, the paper I would choose to write would be about women and whatever the topic was. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that made our professors start to notice that we were there, you know, and that we had something to say and that our voice was a different voice than had been heard before. That's what I mean, but it was sort of quiet, and then it got louder and louder. So, you know, we would start having more demands, and we would start saying we need to study women in history or women in the Talmud, women in Jewish law. And we started to talk about this from our student pulpits, right? And so where, as it used to be, and I, by the way, I was still told when I was graduating in 83 to tone down the feminist references in my resume. Hmm. Not, to, not, told by this, not told by the congregations looking for rabbis, but told by the seminary. That doesn't happen wow. anymore. We had a special meeting just of the female students about what to wear to interviews. The, the male students did not have the same meeting with the dean, Okay. So so that doesn't happen anymore. And we protested. You know, we went to that meeting, but we complained. We said, this is ridiculous. We don't want to be here. And we don't want to be told by male professors what to wear to interviews. So the quiet revolution started to get louder and louder. And we began to, to, to understand that our voices were really critical to the Jewish project, you know, to hear. And we started to preach as we took our jobs we started to preach from the Bema about, for example, domestic violence against women being a Jewish issue, not a women's issue. We started mm-hmm. to preach about abortion and pro-choice as a Jewish issue, not a women's issue. We started to move into the mainstream what had been sisterhood, you know, sisterhood events or the ladies' auxiliary, right? We, women's health, women's mental health. We started to talk about parental leave instead of maternal leave, right? And we started to push onto the agenda of major Jewish organizations and our synagogues, pay equity, not only for female rabbis, but for female executives of Jewish organizations. 
So that's what I mean by the revolution just got louder and louder and louder until it was felt everywhere. And, and I say even up into the, the boardrooms of Jewish organizations, JCCs, federations, but also we started to push this agenda in Israel. We wanted, first of all, we started, this, we started to have female colleagues ordained in Israel who mm-hmm. spoke Hebrew fluently, and they started to change the whole scene in Israel in terms of the patriarchy, in terms of legislation that hurt women religious legislation that in Israel becomes civil legislation. And so we just, we felt that our influence could now be seen, felt, and heard across borders. And I want to say one other thing, Amy. It also started to be felt across denominational borders. Because even though we were reform, most of us, and then of course Reconstructionist, when Amy Eilberg was ordained as the first conservative female rabbi, she joined our ranks as, you know, disturbing the status quo. I think she, don't quote me, I think she was ordained in 85. She was ordained while I was at Holy Blossom. And I wrote articles about it in the, in the Canadian Jewish newspapers about how thrilling it was. So then all of a sudden there were conservative women rabbis, you know, so it wasn't just a small phenomena of one movement, you know. Today, there's already Orthodox women taking these titles, Okay. And so, yeah, of course. And so there's Orthodox women who take the title Rabbah, you know, which is the feminine Hebrew for Rav, which is the Hebrew for Rabbi. And, and there's, and there's different places in the Orthodox world that are quote unquote ordaining women. They might not call it ordaining, but certifying women to serve in rabbinic capacities. Who would have guessed that when I was ordained in 83? I felt we were so alone in the world, in a way, the few of us that were already in the rabbit. And today, I think there's 850, between 850 and 900 female identifying rabbis in the reform movement, right? So from a third of my class being female to, you know, hundreds of us coming together for conventions, you know, plus you have to add the, the female rabbi, female identifying rabbis from other movements. It's a revolution. It's a total revolution. That's incredible. And I'll, I'll just share one more quote that to, to kind of wrap up that topic. You wrote, no Jewish woman today, even the most isolated or right-wing religious one, is free from the influence of feminism, even if just to have to justify her religious position. So to me, when I read that, I thought, okay, yeah, you've moved it from the margins to the center. It has to be reckoned with. It's not just a fringe issue anymore is what I exactly it has to be reckoned with so much so that I'll suggest that although they would deny it bat mitzvah is normative in the orthodox community in its most right-wing factions even okay Mm -hmm. the girl doesn't go up to the torah okay the girl doesn't read from the torah it might just be she gives a speech at her home on a saturday afternoon but no one is free of the influence of jewish feminism There's not a Jewish organization or synagogue or denomination or movement in the world that doesn't relate to Jewish feminism in one way or another, if only to say, our women are happy exactly in the position they have. They don't want any more. Those feminists are wrong. Okay, but when you have to say those feminists are wrong, when you have to write articles defending your women against feminism, you know that feminism has won as a major force in the universe. Okay, the next 
essay that I'd love to talk about is your essay that's entitled The Pink Talit, Women's Rituals as Imitative or Inventive. So let's start by having you just acquaint listeners who might not know with what the talit is. Tell us about the vestments of a rabbi. Sure. And I'll, and I'll just talk about all the sort of rituals that have been assigned, quote unquote, as male. So talit is one of them. Okay. So when Jews pray, they cover their heads. That article, by the way, called a kippah or a yarmulke, was also assigned, quote unquote, as male, meaning only men wore it. That's changed radically. Now, in the Orthodox world, women cover their heads for a different reason. They cover their hair to show that they're married. But in the liberal world, women cover their heads the same reason as men cover their heads, to show respect for the place that you're at and also to say that there's something above you that you end at your head. You're not the whole universe. And that's why men wear it. So women have taken on that. And there are now women's kippot, you know, women's fashion for the well-dressed attendee at synagogue. Uh, So it's not just rabbis who wear these vestments, okay? And all Jews over the age of 13 are welcome to wear a prayer shawl called a talit. It has four corners and on the four corners are fringes that are knotted and tied in a special way to equal the number 613, which is the number of commandments in the Torah. Again, this vestment was assigned as male, meaning only men wore it. Women started wearing the talit, I would say in the 80s. I already wore a talit in the 80s, but today it's common in reform, conservative, reconstructionist. And I will tell you that even in Orthodox synagogues, there are women who wear but it is, it is not something that people have never seen in their lives. So yeah, it's, it's one of those rituals that has moved into a space where people of all gender expressions, by the way, I should say not just women and men, people of all gender expressions who are Jewish may choose to wear the talit. It wraps you in the 613 commandments and it changes you from wearing your street clothes, quote unquote, to your prayer clothes, quote unquote. So those are not just rabbinic garments, but Jewish garments. Hmm. Okay, so in the essay, you talk about kind of feminine versions of what were traditionally masculine talit. Do you want to tell us about the pink talit and about, I believe there was like kind of a a really embellished talit that you said reminded you of what a high priestess would have worn. Right. So I have a, you know, my experience with the pink talit is I was once in Jerusalem and I was walking into a very religious Jewish vestment store, clearly a run by men for men. And in the window was a talit with pink stripes. Now, the traditional talit has blue stripes or black stripes. Here's a, here's a talit with pink stripes and maybe it had a little sequin work. I don't know. It was very feminine looking or let's say traditionally feminine looking. And I walked in and I asked the very orthodox male salesperson, who in the world would buy that pink talit in your window? And he said, oh, no, that's for girls, girls having a bat mitzvah. I looked at him and he said, not in my community, of course, just in yours. So that really moved me. That moment really moved me to start thinking about what do we do with these traditionally masculine garments to make them feel like they belong to us, to make them feel like we're not honorary men wearing male garments. And I I recognize, by the way, this is a binary way of looking at it, and I acknowledge that. But at the time, I really wanted to create a garment, a prayer garment for myself, that would be 
something that I would feel was imagined as a feminine, quote unquote, or traditionally feminine garment. So I made an all lace talit. So the talit looks like what my grandmother's tablecloth might have looked like. And then I put the fringes on it and a silver sequined crown or atara, the band on the top. And it's great. And people stop me whenever I wear it and say, you know, it's just beautiful. And then for my rabbinic talit, for the high holidays, it's a tradition for the rabbi to wear a white robe on the high holidays or a white, white garments, especially on Yom Kippur when we try and identify as pure, right? And so I commissioned a Judaic artist in town named Tema Gentles to make me, to imagine with me if there had been a high priestess instead of Kohen Gadol, what would she have worn? I'm talking about the biblical high priest, okay? And we just created this flowing white thing with purple and blue, which were the high priest colors on the top and bells, you know, that tinkled when I walked. And I love it. I wear it every Yom Kippur. It's very special to me. But I did wear it. I remember wearing it to a convention, Reformed Jewish Congregational Convention. It must have been in the, in the mid 80s or late 80s. And the woman behind me poked me very you know, very aggressively on the shoulder and said, what the heck are you wearing? You know, so it's like, I'm wearing a talit that the high priestess would have worn. And then you have to have that whole conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic too, right? Having the whole conversation is probably exhausting sometimes, but that's the way culture changes is, is through those conversations sometimes, right? Being willing exactly. to have them. And the, and the question is raised, you know, do we want to imitate men and, yes. and this is a very important question. Do, do I want to wear a traditionally male-looking talit and say to the world, this is what it looks like when it's on me? This is normative. Mm -hmm. I am taking a normative Jewish practice or a normative Jewish ritual or mainstream or call it what you want. And I am putting it on myself as a female identifying person. And you had better deal with that juxtaposition that you see in your mind's eye. Or do I take this formerly masculine appearing garment and feminize it so that I say, hey, this is what a talit would have looked like if women had been the voices designing it in the 16th and 15th and 14th centuries? And I don't have the answer to that. It's a question I ask in the book. Should we be imitating or should we be inventing? And what's the problem with each of those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the my main takeaway from that essay too. And I I thought it was again really illuminating the way you presented kind of the pros and cons of each one. One of the things that you said about the cons of this imitation is that just the quote that really stuck with me is you said they wrap us in male imagery making us honorary men for the moment. That that really hit me. I thought, yeah, I guess that is we we get to kind of we get access to that male power, but it doesn't dismantle the system as much. Exactly. So it may clear the way for women to come into the system. It's still a male system. So exactly. in a way, in a way, the pink talus or the lace talus or the high priestess talus dismantles the system and dismantles the assumption that a talus looks like this white fabric with black stripes, because that's the only talus we've seen through our Jewish history as normative. On the one hand, on the other hand, it still is a powerful moment 
to take on this formerly male understood garment, right? And wear it as a female identifying person and say to the world, deal with it. This is what a Jew mm-hmm. looks like, right? It's the same thing as, as what we do as female rabbis all the time, right? On the one hand, we want to be identified as female identified and to say, this is part of our persona and part of our rabbinate, right? On the other hand, I want to be a rabbi among rabbis. So for example, when people constantly say, she's a female rabbi, or I'd like you to meet my rabbi, she's female. I ask them, when you introduce a male rabbi, do you say the same thing? Do you say, oh, my rabbi's male, right? Oh, my doctor's a man. Oh, my car mechanic's a man. No, we only point it out when that unexpected surprise is that the person is female identifying. And that doesn't dismantle the system. What it, I need for us to start saying, my car mechanic, oh, you know, he's male, <laughs> right? To make mm-hmm. people surprised mm-hmm. at the fact that we even notice that. Why do we notice gender only when it's female identifying? We still say, Mm -hmm. oh, there's a female bus driver, right? Or whatever. It continues to problematize the, the, the constant attention to gender in a binary sense, for sure. But now I think also in a non-binary sense, people are constantly talking about a person's gender expression or a person's gender identity. It does affect you after a while from just doing your job, just doing what you want to do when you're constantly, you know, explaining your gender identity to the world. Mm-hmm. So another question that I had from this essay was about inventive ritual. And I was very moved by this moment that you talk about where you, you, took a woman to the mikvah, which is a ritual bath after a rape. Mm-hmm. And you were confronting this very new situation and asking, you know, what, what ritual shall we do? What, what prayers will we say? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I think that what has kept Judaism alive against all odds since the destruction of the temple, when really Everything we knew about Judaism had to change. You know, we had no more animal sacrifice, no more high priests, and no more temple. So every other ancient religion faced with that crisis disappeared. Okay, and we, in our brilliance, said, you know what? We're just going to readjust. <laughs> We're going to readjust Judaism to live in a diaspora and to have no temple and to not do animal sacrifices. What are we going to do instead? We're going to do prayer instead of animal sacrifices. Instead of the one temple in Jerusalem, we're going to have local synagogues. Instead of the high priests, we're going to have rabbis. Okay, that's how we survived. So I truly believe that what has kept Judaism vibrant, not only alive, but, but, but really, really vibrant, is its adaptation to the feminist way of perceiving the universe and the gender conversation altogether, right? And so through this feminist revolution, we've come to recognize that not only the voices of women have been missing, but the experience, the lived experience of women, menstruation, lactation, childbirth, menopause, has been missing from our canon of liturgical and experiential possibilities. So yes, I think inventive, being inventive has what has kept Judaism alive. And I'll give you the best example of this, I think. 
the modern state of Israel. Let's not talk about its politics right now at this moment. Let's just talk about what it means to have a Jewish homeland again, which has to readapt to not being a diaspora, has to readapt its Judaism to being a 21st century Judaism that works for everybody. And so it's a very vibrant Judaism that we have now. And even even the denominations, by the way, they all invent. They all invent ways to make, even though I said the Orthodox bat mitzvah is a kind of an invention. And And I think it's answering, all these inventions are answering the feminist critique, which is, hello, you know, we're here. You need to draw us in. Look, I can tell you the truth. More women have said to me, over the 36 years of my rabbinate, I came back to Judaism because of feminism. I had left. I had felt unwelcome. I had felt unheard. I had felt invisible. And look, that's 50% of the Jewish people and what an enrichment it is for us to have those women back. Can you tell us a little bit about, because you had mentioned the kind of the rites of passage and the landmarks in a in a biologically female person's body of menstruation and lactation and menopause and all of those things. And I, I loved that conversation in, in your essay. And then you also point out that as women invent new rituals, that there are some cautions that you have for women about not just assuming heterosexuality, for example, and childbearing as the norm. So can you talk about some of the dangers that you point out in creating rituals that are based on those? Absolutely. Look, I say in the book, and I've said this before, biology should not be spiritual destiny. So I believed Mm -hmm. that, you know, when I first started this, this enterprise of being a rabbi, right? I believe that a woman's body or a man's body shouldn't dictate what they can and cannot do religiously. That's true now of people who gender identify differently than male or female, that we are all spiritual beings, right? First and foremost, we are spiritual beings that is housed in a body, okay? If we are spiritual beings that are are housed in bodies, then our bodies are secondary to the spiritual endeavor. So we have to be careful if we invent rituals, and I don't care whether if we invent them for women, whether we invent them for people who are trans, whether we invent them for people who are non-binary, we have to be careful not to neglect the soul on behalf of the body, right? And say, okay, your body determines what your spirituality is going to be. It's a a tightrope because on the other hand, your body does in many ways determine your spiritual life and your soul. So I don't want to negate that, but I also don't want to make it so, so primary that someone who doesn't feel embodied in their spirituality feels left out. So, you know, Mm -hmm. when we started to do rituals for lactation and childbirth, for example, or menopause, you know, we became aware that we were excluding a lot of women who were either by choice childless or childless by circumstance or not married or not partnered or didn't want children or whose life with their children was not the joy that they had expected, right? Or who lost children or who miscarried. We realized that they were not resonating with 
this universally assumed ritual. So then we had to think about rituals for miscarriage, right? Rituals for separation, rituals, those kind of things. And then you get to a point where you just, you need a ritual for every moment in your life, basically. Mm -hmm. And it can become overwhelming where your life becomes so ritualized that it feels a little bit like over the top. So for, I do have this question now that I hadn't thought of before, but would would a congregant, let's say if someone does have a miscarriage in your congregation, would would she come to you and say, I feel a need for a ritual to mark this event in my life and, and process it in a spiritual way? Could you help me come up with something? Or how does that happen? Well, it would. It, I would offer. You know, if somebody ah. tells me that they've had a miscarriage, I would say, is there something we can do together spiritually mm-hmm. that'll make you feel grounded? Right, make you feel, give you some spiritual strength, right? Wow. Um, but she'd have to come to me and tell me she had a miscarriage. But, but this is what I do. This is how the person who was raped got to the mikvah, right? We mm-hmm. said together, what's a traditional Jewish ritual that can help give you spiritual strength? And we thought, well, the cleansing waters of the mikvah, right, could be used. And it was a very inventive ritual, right? Subsequently, I've, bring, I've brought many people to the mikvah for spiritual cleansing rituals, like after infidelity in a monogamous relationship or after death, you know, of a, of a loved one. Like the mikvah is an amazing ritual. So, so I think the more open we are to using traditional rubrics for modern reasons, you know, the more we'll find ways to be inclusive. So yes, congregants have come to me for all sorts of things and said, is there something we can do Jewishly to mark this? Wow. What a beautiful way to spend a life. It's just striking me <laughs> to be that to be in that role in a community. I I just admire and think it's just really inspiring. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, my last topic that I wanted to ask you about is an essay that you didn't write, but it's in the anthology, and it's called A 30-Year Perspective on Women and Israeli Feminism by Rabbi Nama Kelman. Can you talk a, a little bit, since, especially since this season is kind of a geographical study of patriarchy, I'd love it if you could just mention some of the topics in that essay and talk about gender in Israel a bit. Sure. I think, I think Israel plays a unique role in Jewish consciousness, I'm very aware of the very profound political tension that right now exists as we're speaking. But with all that, Israel still plays a central role in the Jewish consciousness. And I think we can start from the very basic perspective that women serve in the Israeli army. And that's going to change the perception or the machismo perception of the Israeli soldier altogether, right? And women have fought very hard to to climb the ranks in the Israeli army, which is very important. And so you ha- you get your first female pilot, you get your first female fighter, and women are now in combat units in the Israeli army. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, because we, we want to fight militarism, and as, especially as a feminist, see its origins in you know, male domineering and the male way of looking at the world, which is it's my team or your team and only one team can win. But being, being a country which needs a military for its own protection, it was 
from the get-go clear that women were going to join the military and be, be drafted alongside with men as an obligation. So Nama in her essay talks about how having women in the army changes the whole army structure and calls to question some machismo assumption in the country. That's number one. Number two, look, I think reform rabbis are a bit of a novelty in Israel, which is the orthodox hegemony is very strong. Although they are not the numerical majority, Orthodox Jews wield a lot of political power in Israel. That is something the reform movement fights day and night and actively and passionately. But having female rabbis has changed the landscape in Israel as much as it's changed the landscape here in the diaspora. Meaning that when you have an assumption in a country that orthodoxy is the norm, that assumption is questioned every day by having female rabbis on television, by having female rabbis perform bar bat mitzvahs, by having reform female rabbis perform weddings. Everybody, including the most Orthodox Jew in Israel, has now seen or heard of a female rabbi. And it's really important that they're not rabbis in the diaspora. Because it's easy to dismiss to say, oh, that's a fad in Canada. That's a fad in America. No, no. These are Israeli-born, Hebrew-speaking, native Israeli female rabbis. Okay, so no one can say, oh, they were raised in the United States. They saw a different kind. No, no, no. They were raised in Israel. And so they've changed the landscape very much. And of course, women in the Supreme Court of Israel, women in What happens is when you have a country that still sees its rulers as religious leaders, right, you're going to have to change your assumption about the way the country is run once women take high roles in all of that. And that's what Nama was talking about, and that's what's happened in Israel as well as here. So one thing that I observed, even just when I studied there when I was in college, and then just when I would read different things, you know, in the decades since, is observing a really wide variety, to be honest, and and kind of almost diametrically opposed forces, it seems to me. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I would see, we, we did some work, like volunteer work on a kibbutz when we were there. And the egalitarian tradition of the kibbutzim was really striking, like men and women doing all the same stuff, like working on the farm together, you know, doing all of the housework together. That seemed like extremely progressive. And that comes from the kind of the founding of Israel. But at the same time, then you have the more traditional Orthodox communities that are very, you know, gender segregated and very, very patriarchal and insulated. Yes. And so do those, does that tension and those, those two kind of influences, they still exist in Israel, right? And, and how do they interplay with each other? Oh, that's, listen, it's, it's very, it's very alive. For example, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem are two different, almost like two different countries. Okay. So secular Tel Aviv is, 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 I would say the rest of the country, except for Jerusalem, is kind of based on that founding ideology. The founding ideology, which was socialist, egalitarian, democratic, liberal. There's no question that Israel's founding ideology was all of those things. Liberal, Mm -hmm. democratic, egalitarian, you know, striving for democracy, striving for equal rights for all of its citizens. And, And within the gender question, equal rights for women was a given. 
It was a total given. Long before women had the right to vote, by the way, in the United States, the first Zionist Congress gave women the right to vote at the first Zionist Congress in Basel in 1890-something. Okay? Hmm. So, so there's no question that the founding principles of the state of Israel were egalitarian. As the religious right gained not only power, but also demographic, they have more children, okay? Those values began to be questioned. The truth of the matter is the vast majority of the Israeli population holds strongly and passionately those values and sees the religious hegemony as not mainstream and fights it, okay? You know, the question is, can we fight on all fronts while we're also fighting our own security? So it's a very complicated country because of that, because it's got all these political issues, economic issues, and it's got its own internal issues about citizenship, about the rights of Palestinians, the rights of minorities, Palestinian, Israeli, Arab citizens. You know, it's got a wide variety of the kind of people that call themselves people who live in Israel, right? Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people who identify themselves as Israeli also identify themselves as democratic, liberal, and egalitarian. And you can see this, by the way, in the way the courts run. You can see the amount of women judges, women Supreme Court judges, women in the court system, women doctors, female-identified members of Knesset, right? You can see this very clearly. It's a work in progress. You know, I always say to people, and this doesn't excuse any political events that are troubling to everybody, including me, but I always say to people, you know, this is a country that was founded only 75 years ago by a traumatized group of Holocaust survivors. It's going to take some time. It's a work in progress. So it's egalitarianism is also a work in progress that we're that we're all we're all watching carefully and working towards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that well, that was one of the really interesting things in this essay for me was just that back and forth of of more orthodox forces gaining, you know, strength for a little while and then feminist forces fighting for, you know, for example, to have a non-orthodox wedding ceremony. That was one of the things that was contested. And even since Nama's essay, by the way, even since her essay, women have been pressing in the orthodox world to be named as authorities for religious institutions in towns in Israel. So there are now Orthodox women, they might not be called rabbis, but there are Orthodox women in charge of, for example, kashrut or the mikvah or things that normally would only be allowed to be controlled, you know, certifications by men. There are now women. So even within the Orthodox community in Israel, as I said to you, feminism touches everybody eventually, Mm -hmm. right? Even in the Orthodox community in Israel, women are starting to take what I would call religious leadership roles. And you start to see that as normative. Mm -hmm. Okay. The last question about that though, is with the shifting to the right that's happening right now, are feminists worried about that? Is that going to now create some backsliding in terms of women's rights in Israel? Well, are people bracing for that? Nobody's bracing for it because liberal forces will not allow it to happen. 
And I feel 100% confident about that. And I have to feel 100% confident about the rest of the world, which is sliding to the right. The entire Uh world. I look at the United States to the south of us, and it scares me with the the rise of the fundamentalist evangelical religious right that also has some issues around women's roles, okay, and the right of women to control their own destinies. So I look at the whole world right now moving very fast towards the right, which always is bad for women. I don't care what the religion is, okay? The entire world moving right is going to be bad for women. Fundamentalism, I don't care whether it's Christian or Muslim or Jewish. Fundamentalism is bad for women, (laughs) okay? Many people might disagree with me, but that is as clear as a bell to me. And so we, all of us, need to be active voices for liberalism against the push to make fundamentalist voices the religious voice that everybody hears. Mm-hmm. Hear, hear. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode, Rabbi Goldstein. And again, I'm just so grateful to have you here. And I'd like to just ask if there's anything that you'd like to leave with listeners before we wrap up. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's been a pleasure. Yes, I do. I always end my talks and, and my books and my and my presentations about, you know, the the disruptions or the revolution of feminism by saying the following. It's like pushing an iceberg. If you push an iceberg, you have no idea how far it's gone until you go back to the shore and you look at it from a distance. So in 1983, if you had told me how far the iceberg will have moved in 2023, I never would have believed you. I would have thought, I am pushing this thing so hard. I'm alone pushing this thing. It's so big. It'll never move. Okay. Now, maybe iceberg isn't a good metaphor anymore because of climate change. So say tremendous boulder, whatever it is. And then you step back on the shore. And first of all, you see how many people have been pushing it with you. You thought all along that you were pushing it by yourself. But you, you didn't realize it's moving way faster than you thought it was moving because people have been pushing it with you. So that's the first thing you see when you walk to go, go back to the shore. And the second thing you see is you are astonished and grateful. You say to yourself, look at how far it's gone. So it'll just keep moving because there'll be people with me and after me that continue to push it. So I'm extraordinarily grateful to know that since I decided in 1968 to be a rabbi and everybody thought it was a big joke, till today, when there's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and, and any young w- girl listening to this podcast will say, of course I can be a rabbi. Who would ever think otherwise, right? That, that is a miracle. And I'm very grateful to be living in this time when it happened. Well, I'm sure all of those girls and women within Judaism, and honestly, again, even from outside it, are grateful for the work that you did pushing that iceberg so that the changes have happened. I'm just so inspired. I'll also recommend to listeners, if you're interested in Jewish feminism, your book was fantastic. And again, it's called New Jewish Feminism, Probing the Past, Forging the Future. I highly recommend purchasing it or checking it out from the library and reading it. And again, Rabbi Elise Goldstein, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. 
Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy.